Morning folks and uh, morning to those at home via the live stream as well. Please do keep the Bible handy, particularly we're looking at Luke this morning. They will have a quick squiz at uh, Romans as well. Uh, as we start though, as we, uh, we reflect on that Bible reading and uh, I'm sure uh, it was interesting to many of us, perhaps fresh to many of us, uh, perhaps we wondered just how important is it uh, to know who you are? Uh, to know where you came from, to know who your ancestors were. What do you think that you inherit from your ancestors? Obviously, uh, you have inherited a name from those who've gone before you, but uh, you've inherited DNA. Your genetics come from your ancestors. If you've been to the doctors often enough, uh, been tested for enough things, you'd be familiar that one of the questions they often ask you is whether these things run in your family uh, because something has been passed along down the line. Uh, We learn something of our character, Uh, the people that we are. We are shaped and influenced by those who raised us. Uh, And uh, in my family, uh, we inherited a career, or at least in the sense of we weren't allowed to inherit a career. My grandfather was in the army. He told my father he could be anything he wanted as long as it wasn't the army. And uh, my dad was a teacher, so he listened clearly, told me I could be anything I wanted as long as it wasn't a teacher. Uh, so uh, I don't know what will happen with the next generation. Who knows from there? But how important is it to know that? How important is it to know who your ancestors are? Uh, how important is it to know where Jesus came from? Because Luke clearly thinks it is. Uh, and that's what we're looking at today. Now, as we, uh, as we look at that passage in Luke chapter 3 and do have it handy from verse 21, uh, if you had an award that was handed out for putting a heading in the strange place, uh, the one above Luke chapter 3 verse 21 would be one of those. I don't know whether the person who put those in the Bible got paid by the heading and thought time to slip one in there or not Uh, but it is a strange place for a break because verse 21 does follow on straight away uh, from what's been happening in verse 20. So all through the first half of the chapter we've been reading about the work of John the Baptist, we've been reading about people coming down to be baptised and in verse 21 We just read that when all those people were coming to be baptised, that Jesus came down to be baptised too. Uh, There is no break, there is no division between those two events. If the idea of the first half was that just people were coming, John was there baptising them day by day, week by week, who knows how long it went on for. Uh, And then in verse 21, and we don't know when this happened exactly, But as part of that crowd coming down to John, Jesus came along with them. Uh, The way that it reads is that he is just one of that crowd. He is part of that number. He is not distinguished uh, in any particular way. There is no sense in the act of coming to John that Jesus would have stood out from anyone else who came down. But there is something different about Jesus' baptism because suddenly while he's there praying, having been baptised, heaven is opened. Uh, Literally, what it says is that the skies were torn apart. Uh, If you imagine you had a piece of cloth and you just ripped it apart uh, so that it's opened up, the Spirit comes down on Jesus like a dove, descends on him, and a voice speaks to him from the heavens saying, You are my Son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. And then just as suddenly, Luke moves on with the story to, of all things, a genealogy. And we think, are you serious? You've just had, on the one hand, this incredible cosmological divine intervention happen and then 77 names, one after the other. Now, if you were paying attention to this, which one would you rather hear about? But by a ratio of eight verses to one, 
Luke decides the names are the thing that we want to be talking about. So what are we supposed to do with that? Why does Luke write all this down the way that he does? Because that's the question that we should be asking. I mean, Luke writes it because it's true, that's obvious. We know that Luke's gospel, the whole point of writing it, he was saying at the very beginning that he wanted to write down the truth and this is the truth. And so Luke is just doing what he said he was going to do in chapter 1. Fair enough, case closed. But surely there has to be more to it than that. I mean, you can have different people reporting on the same event who say different things, can't you? If you have multiple people seeing the same event, they will focus on different parts of that uh, as they talk about it. So we could go on a walk up Anstey Hill after the church, for example, and you could speak to different people and they might have noticed different things. One person might choose to talk about the trees that are up there and where you can see evidence of burn-offs over the years. Another person could comment on the wildlife, all the kangaroos, and wonder where all the wild sheep that used to live up there have gone. Uh, A third person could comment on the view that you get out over the city, that you can look straight down some of the major highways uh, that are out there. All of those things are true. They're just different perspectives on the same experience. So our question is that why Luke, in reflecting on the life of Jesus, chooses to present his material in this way. What I want to suggest is that as we look at this part of Luke's gospel, there are four building blocks that Luke uses to build the rest of this part of the story. There is the ministry of John, which we heard last week in the first half of Luke chapter 3. There is the baptism of Jesus that we get in a couple of verses here. There's the genealogy of Jesus as he tracks through his entire family history. And then there is the temptation of Jesus in chapter 4, the story that comes afterward. Each one of them relates to the others and together they fit together uh, to build one particular picture of the commissioning of Jesus for the ministry he came to do. So let's get going. So the first block that we saw last week is John's baptism. Uh, Now we covered that last week, we're not going to cover it all over again, Um, hopefully you remember, if not you can go back and re-watch it via the website, but to recap the big idea, John's baptism was about two things, right? John baptised people first of all for repentance, for the forgiveness of sins. So people came to John and repented of their sins before God and John baptised them for that. And from the Isaiah quote, that follows immediately after that in the first half of John chapter, uh, Luke chapter 3, we find that the other thing that John was doing was preparing people. Right? It was a preparation for the coming of God's Messiah. So there's two things that are going on in John's baptism. First of all, repentance. And secondly, preparation for the Messiah to come. That's what John's baptism was all about. That's the stage that is set before Jesus walks in in verse 21. And so we read in today's passage when all those other people were coming down to be baptized by John for repentance and to prepare them for God's Messiah, we read that Jesus came down to be baptized too. Now this should raise a question for us straight away because if people are coming down to John for repentance and to prepare for the Messiah, Jesus has never done anything wrong So what exactly is he repenting of? And he is the Messiah. So how exactly is he supposed to be preparing the way for himself? In other words, why is Jesus getting baptised? 
because the things that apply to the others don't seem to apply to him. It can't be for either of those things. Now, the most likely answer to why Jesus has come down to be baptised by John, and this is the one that fits in with the unfolding story that I mentioned before, is that Jesus is baptised as a way of demonstrating his association with the people. See, if we read back in verse 7, we read that there are crowds of people who are coming down to John to be baptised. We don't know how many are coming down, but the way that it's described suggests that there are a lot. People are coming from everywhere down to John. Then in verse 21, as part of that great crowd, not separate from that great crowd, but as part of it, Jesus comes down with them. He went as one of the people. There is nothing there that suggests that he would have been noticed as anything different or special in any way at that point. Jesus associates with the people. Now that might not sound like a big idea, but it is. This is a very significant idea. Uh, If you've ever read a book or watched a film which is set in some historical period. It can be a true story or it can be something completely made up. But if you've ever watched that, if you've ever seen some kind of historical drama, the the hero of the story is always somehow different from everyone else around them, aren't they? The hero always stands out. The hero is always a little bit taller, a little bit stronger, a little bit more intelligent, somehow even a little bit cleaner. You know, it's the strangest thing. Even if you're watching these historical films and they're fighting battles on muddy battlefields, the hero is always somehow shiny and clean uh, despite all of that. And they always seem to think and act like a modern person would rather than uh, one of their peers. The hero always stands out as being more impressive, more significant than everyone around them. And what that shows us is that as modern people, we have an expectation of what a leader should look like. A leader should be someone who is different from the ordinary folks around them. But Jesus comes as one of the people. It's surprising even then, but it's also very significant considering what he came to do, which is what we'll see in a moment. But at least at the baptism of Jesus, something very impressive, something very big happens. As he was praying, we read, having been baptised, heaven was opened, the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Now that's worth commenting on, isn't it? You know, you feel like that's the kind of thing that if you saw that happen, you would think something else needs to be said at this point. And yet Luke just says, oh yeah, you know, this happened, skies ripped apart, voice came down from heaven, no problem. You know, we're about to step outside for morning tea in a moment. It's a a beautiful day, blue skies, the sun is shining. I want you to imagine that you're holding your crumbly biscuit in one hand and sipping on a cup of tea with the other, chatting about something or other, and then suddenly the skies are ripped open. You can see into the throne room of God. You can hear the voice of God speaking down to us. You would remember that, wouldn't you? That would be a memorable visit to church. Uh, But Luke doesn't seem to say any much. Now, we could say, well, Luke doesn't have a lot of room, you know, paper was expensive, all of that kind of thing. But hang on, he spends 16 verses talking about the genealogy. Surely he could say a word or two more about God's voice speaking directly to Jesus. Now, there are things that we can say about what Luke does tell us. Why Why does he leave it so brief, but why does he move on so quickly? One interesting thing that you notice about what Luke says here is that this is one of those rare moments when you see all three persons of the Trinity working together. 
You see, God the Father making an announcement, and then God the Spirit descends upon God the Son. That's a statement that he's making right there. It's a statement about the divinity of Jesus, the full divinity of Jesus. Right? Jesus is not just a metaphorical son of God. Uh, a lot of the ancient religions, a lot of ancient philosophies talked about how all people were sons of God because they were made, or sons or daughters of God because they were made by God. The Caesars claimed to be the sons of, of the gods because uh, that gave them greater authority. No, Jesus is truly God, is being revealed here. Jesus is God made flesh. But here's another question that we could be asking, Matt. Now that is true, but why is God saying it now? Why has God waited until Jesus is baptised in order to make this announcement now? He's probably about 30 years old at this point. Uh, He's been the son of God that whole time. Why is it being announced at this point? Because in some ways, this is like a commissioning for Jesus. Right? These things have been true the whole time, but these stories that we are reading in this part of Luke's Gospel serve to prepare and to announce what it is that Jesus is about to do. God is announcing Jesus to the world in his baptism. He is about to reveal who he is through the genealogy and then the temptation is his final preparation before verse 14 of chapter 4 where he launches his ministry. Chapter 4, verse 14, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him, right? So 4, verse 14, Jesus launches out on his ministry. This chapter beforehand is all about the preparation for that event to happen. God's words announce that his son is here. The time is now, the game is on. But that announcement also tells us something about who Jesus is, specifically what kind of person he is going to be. See, the words that God speaks there, you are my son, echo Psalm 2 in the Old Testament. If you're familiar with Psalm 2, if you're not familiar with Psalm 2, uh, Psalm 2 is an announcement of God's coming king. Psalm 2 opens up with all of the rulers of the nations coming together to plan, to scheme against God, saying, we don't want God ruling over our nations anymore. We're going to throw off his rule. We're going to work things out for ourselves without God. And God's response is first to announce in verse 6, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain, and then to speak to his king. Verse 7, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Right? There's the echo of Luke chapter 3. That connection is deliberate. Because in that revelation that Luke is recording here, God the Father announces to the people, you know that king that I promised you back in Psalm 2? He is here. And that says a lot about Jesus. As God commissions him here, he tells us what kind of shape his ministry is going to take. It tells us how that we should look at him. Because if you keep reading Psalm 2, you will find out that God's king is a good king. He's a fair king and a just king. But he's also a strong and a firm king. He's not someone that we should take for granted. He is someone who is to be obeyed. If the baptism of Jesus 
identifies Jesus as one of the people, just the same as anybody else. The heavenly voice sets him aside as God's divine king. Both of those things are true and held together at this point. And it's that announcement of those two things that launches us into the genealogy of Jesus. And so here we are. This is the biggest section of today's passage. The majority of the passage is taken up uh, with a whole list of names, one after the other. And like every part of today, every part of Luke's gospel, we should be asking ourselves the question, why? Why has Luke recorded this full genealogy of Jesus? We know he doesn't have to because two of the other gospel writers didn't. So why has Luke put this down? Now, there are all kinds of things that we could say if we're trying to make sense of this list of names. We could point out, right, ancient people, for whatever reason, better or worse, seem to care about their genealogy a lot more uh, than we do. Now, I don't know how many uh, of your ancestors you're aware of. If you speak to most people, they probably struggle to go very far beyond uh, three or four generations of knowing the names or any kind of details Uh, about our ancestors, let alone 77 of them. Uh, It's pretty rare for us to do that, but we know that ancient people seem to care a lot more about where they came from. So we could just say, well, it's, you know, something that people were interested in back then and we're not really interested in now. But that doesn't help us deal with the text, does it? And if we believe that all Scripture is God-breathed, if all Scripture is the voice of God to his people, we want to do a bit better than just say, well, that's something that might have mattered back then but not now. So what else can we do with the genealogy? Well, we could flick through and pick out the game, the names that we know. We could say there in El Madam, Eliakim, Matt Hat, what a name. Uh, we could just ignore all of those and we could focus in on the ones we have heard of, David, Abraham, those kinds of guys. And we could spend our time talking about them because they're obviously important people. We could talk about, well, Jesus' line has all these important, significant figures in it and many of us probably do love to go back and look at the significant people we might be descended from and uh, put them out there as if that's somehow to our credit but that's not really what Luke does either he doesn't say any more about David or Abraham or anyone else than he does about those guys we've never heard of so that's probably not what Luke's doing either we could try and divide it up into sections uh, like Matthew does if you read Matthew's gospel what Matthew does Uh, He divides the genealogy up in saying, okay, here's this kind of prehistory time, like the early days of God's people. Uh, Then he says, here's the period of the kings and here's the period of the exile. And he sort of uses that to say, well, here's this great salvation history story uh, that God is telling and bringing Jesus about as the culmination of all of that planning. But again, that's not what Luke does. Luke just gives us all of those names in one big list from Jesus all the way back. So what is Luke doing? Now, it is appropriate for us to remember at this point that nothing in the Bible is there for no reason and the genealogies in the Bible always have a purpose. You know, we kind of joke about them, we kind of dismiss them, but they're there for a reason. At no point are the writers just trying to fill space or putting things down because they're somehow obliged to. It's always to show something about what's happening. It's either to show where an important character has come from, to introduce them to the scene, or perhaps to show the fulfilment of a promise that God has made. There is always a purpose. And that's what Luke is doing here. 
And Luke tips us off to his purpose by mentioning one name, which he mentions exactly the same as every other name, but he mentions one name that is very different from the rest of them. He finishes his genealogy right at the end in verse 38 by saying the son of Adam, the son of God. See, Matthew, Matthew starts with Abraham, Matthew works straight down to Jesus and it makes sense for Matthew's purpose because he wants to show that Jesus was descended from Abraham, that he was a proper and official Jew. He was the one who received the promises that God had made to Abraham. They were fulfilled in Jesus. But Luke wants to reinforce that Jesus is the son of God. He's the son of God both in the special one-off sense in that he is God made flesh walking on the earth but he is also the son of God in a very human sense that he is a descendant of the first man, Adam, made in God's image just as any one of us. Both of those identities are about to become very important in Luke's gospel. So, let's start putting those pieces together. What is Luke doing here in chapter 3? He's holding those two things about Jesus side by side. He's holding together the affirmation that Jesus is God's one and only son, not just made in God's image, but the living God made flesh, and that that, in turn, gives Jesus dominion, lordship over all of God's creation, right? That's the first truth that Luke has put out there about Jesus. But not only that, Luke is making a point that Jesus is one of the people, no different to anyone else. His experience of life is the same as ours. He is a son of Adam, to steal a phrase, made in God's image, just like we are. And that's the point of the baptism and the genealogy put there together. And it's particularly significant because the very next thing that Luke mentions is the temptation. He jumps straight from the end of that genealogy that Jesus was a son of Adam, a son of God, straight into that story of Jesus' temptation. Now, I don't want to steal too much. Um, You know, it's always a bit risky to kind of read ahead and steal from what we're going to look at in the future, but it's not going to be until next year that we come back and look at Luke chapter 4, I think. So we'll probably all have forgotten by then, so it's probably okay, I figure. But what Luke is doing is presenting Jesus as one who is like Adam, but different. Different how? Well, the reason we read that Romans passage, the reason we went to Romans 5, is because Paul makes that same comparison between Jesus and Adam there. Paul argues that because of Adam's sin, because of Adam's failure to listen to the voice of God, not only does he make a mistake that changes his life, he dooms the whole world to the experience of the same. Right? The way that Paul talks about it in Romans 5 is he says that sin entered the world through one man with the idea that once sin was in the world, everything was corrupted by it. It's a little bit like the myth of Pandora's box. You know the myth of Pandora's box? It's that Greek tradition that kind of says that, okay, the gods gave Pandora, the first woman, all of these wonderful gifts and they also gave her this jar that she wasn't allowed to open Of course, she does open it and all of the evils come out of that, or evils of the world come out of that jar and once they're out, you can't catch them and put them back in. The whole world is ruined uh, because of that. It's kind of an echo of what happens 
in, the, in Romans 5, what Paul is describing uh, about Adam. Because of Adam's sin, Paul is arguing, the whole world is corrupted. Now, when we're talking about sin, when we're thinking about what sin is, this is not how we normally think about sin. Because when we think about sin and talk about it, especially when we're talking to kids, for some reason this is how we always talk to kids about sin, we talk about it as being like bad choices that you make, right? We talk about sin being when you choose to do something that's not the thing that you should choose. Now, it's partly true, choosing to do the wrong thing is sin, but sin is so much more than that, right? Adam's sin is not just about people occasionally making wrong choices, It's about all of creation being tainted, corrupted forever. We are born broken without a chance unless someone steps in to fix everything that has been damaged. See, because we talk about sin like that, as though it's just the occasional bad thing that we do, that, I suspect, is the reason why most of us think that we're fundamentally pretty good people. Because we think sin is just doing bad things and we know that sometimes we do bad things but we know that it's not very often and we know that when we do there's normally a good reason for it and so we shouldn't be blamed and figure that we're probably not actually that bad. But sin affects everything. Once it's out there, once Adam has done this, once the world is broken, there's no unbreaking it. It influences everything around us. It's kind of like we talked about Pandora's box. It's probably a little bit more like doing kids' craft with glitter. You know, once you've taken the lid off that, there's no stopping it. It's everywhere. It's not just on the paper. You'll be washing glitter out of your hair for weeks after that. That's the legacy of Adam. But now, argues Paul and suggests Luke in our passage as he moves into the temptation, we have a new Adam. See, the gospel is not just good news, the gospel is a second chance. Just as Adam, the son of God, disobeyed God, ignored his voice, introduced sin into the world, now we have a new Adam, the son of God, who will be tempted but without sin. The gospel is not just good news, it's a second chance. That's the best news, isn't it? Imagine if you were given a second chance. Imagine if you could go back, kind of unroll the scroll of your life and look at everything that's gone wrong, every mistake that you've made, every relationship that's been damaged, not forced to relive those things, but you could just fix them in an instant. You could make everything right. How good would that be? That's the kind of second chance that Luke's speaking of here. Sin entered through the first Adam, life enters through the second. Romans 5 verse 15, Paul puts it this way, he says, the gift is not like the trespass. He says the trespass, he's talking about Adam's rebellion, he's talking about the first sin. The gift is not like the trespass, for if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? See, because here's the twist, right? Jesus is not just a new Adam. It's not just like rebooting to the start and going, okay, well, the first Adam, that just broke everything. Let's start with Jesus and see if we can't do something better with him instead. Jesus doesn't just stand as a new beginning. Jesus enters into the brokenness of the world 
to stand with his brothers and sisters to bring them home. And that is why Luke holds these things together. That's the significance of Jesus' baptism and genealogy, to put those blocks together. John announces the need for repentance and Jesus steps into that brokenness to do something about it. He steps into that mucky place of sin. But he doesn't go alone. He walks into that battle to bring with him all of those who were affected by it. Jesus rescues us from the mud and the muck of sin by stepping into it with us to bring us out. See, I think again, a common uh, image that we use to talk about the cross and to talk about the salvation of Jesus is that kind of special emergency rescue type situation. You know, you might have heard uh, illustrations like a rock climber trapped on a cliff face and the helicopter sort of swoops in uh, to grab them from nowhere and save them. It's not a bad image because it does kind of capture that idea that we need saving, we need someone other than ourselves to get us out of that situation. But I think the idea of the work of Jesus here is even richer because Jesus is not like one of those fake historical fiction heroes. He doesn't ride in spotless on a white horse through the battlefield to swoop us up onto his saddle. Jesus steps into the rottenness of human life and experiences it himself so that he might bring us out. Jesus feels pain. Jesus feels loss. Jesus feels suffering, heat, cold. He sweats. He works. He's tempted by sin just as we are tempted by sin. He hurts because of it. He sees those he loves suffer because of the brokenness of our world. And he steps into it to lead us through to hope. That is the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel to each one of us is that whatever life may bring, whatever fears you may have, Whatever doubts you may face, whatever suffering you go through, whatever goes on around us, to us, or to those that we love, that Jesus walks with us. I hope that that can give us some comfort to realise that no matter how bad things are, we are never alone. And the comfort that we can draw from knowing we have someone with us who knows exactly what it is to walk that path. And it should give us hope to know that no matter how much sin gets its claws into us, no matter how much it digs into our thoughts, our hearts, our attitudes, everything, whatever happens, that the new Adam, God's son and king, has overcome it. Now we're about to take a break from Luke's gospel for a while, which is a shame in a lot of ways because the hero has just been revealed for who he is. But I do hope that there's something in this that can give us a sense of excitement this week. Just a little bit excited about what's to come and the hope that has been revealed. Why don't we pray? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the gospel. We thank you for this good news We thank you that Luke has recorded this for us. We thank you that we know now that whatever happens, that whatever we experience, whatever we see, whatever we face, that you walk alongside us. We thank you that even though 
we are the ones who have broken your creation, that you didn't leave us in that, that you have entered into it with us so that we might be restored, redeemed and reconciled to you forever. Uh, Lord, help us to embrace that truth, to never be content with just being good enough, uh, but to long for that perfection of eternity with you, to be what we were meant to be. And we pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.